we're going to do a little time travel. All right. As you're turning there, let's go ahead and uh, let's, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And, and Lord, we want to lift up our evening to you. And Lord, we come here because we don't know what to expect. The only thing I can expect, Lord, is you want to deal with us in a way, Lord, that maybe we're not sure of. And Lord, those are areas that you know of. And Lord, we just pray that you go before us, help us to understand your word. Lord, that we be pleasing in your sight, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Genesis 43. All right. great chapter set before us actually you almost don't want to break up chapters 42 43 44 and 45 you almost want to read the whole section in its entirety because they all come together but unfortunately we don't have that kind of time um but nonetheless uh, great great information uh great insight you know i often as i read the scripture i think about the men that the Bible writes about. They didn't know what a video camera was. They didn't have a voice recorder. None of those things existed. And yet, by the Holy Spirit, he documents all the details for us. Joseph didn't know he was going to be written about. Judah, Reuben, Jacob, they didn't know. They didn't know their lives were going to be documented for our benefit. And yet, because the Holy Spirit wants to use these men and these lives for our benefit, he saw it so. Now, before I read the, the chapter, um, some of you may have known this, but there's a famous novel written by Alexander Dumas, written around 1844. And again, you may have heard of it. It's, it's really a great story. Uh, it's called The Count of Monte Cristo. And throughout the years, it's, you know, it's had several adaptations, um, and Alexander Dumas is also known for writing the Three Musketeers. So you could tell this guy's a good writer. Uh, the story centers around his main character, Edmund Dantes, a young and successful merchant sailor who is wrongfully imprisoned on a remote island for years. For years he's on this island, and he escapes jail. He acquires a fortune and sets about getting revenge on those responsible for his imprisonment. However, his plans have devastating consequences for innocent, for the innocent as well as the guilty. In addition, it's a story of romance, loyalty, betrayal, selfishness. Shown throughout the story as characters slowly reveal their true inner nature. And why do I bring this up? Well, Edmund Dantes, I mean, though it's, a, it's a, obviously a fictional character, uh, there's similarities between him and Joseph, Jacob's son. They were both falsely accused. Both are imprisoned. Everything is taken from both of them. And they both make it out of prison. They have both amassed wealth and good fortune. But what's the difference? The big difference is God. That's the big difference. 
That's the best difference. Edmund used his fortune as a tool for vengeance. He wants to punish everyone who contributed to his demise. Joseph, as we'll learn, could have done the same thing if it were not for God in his life. As we approach this chapter, it is interesting to me how God is truly instrumental in all the details of our lives. And for the life of the Christian, there is no such thing as a coincidence. And far too often, we, we go about our day thinking it's a coincidence, don't we? We get in our car in the morning, get in a, you know, we drive to work, put on the radio, and somehow we manage to get here, right? Get to work, then you have your list of things, and things happen throughout the day, and it's all coincidence. No. As a believer, God is in your life, and he's orchestrating events in your life unbeknownst to you. I can only imagine what his day looks like. All the things he has to orchestrate. So far, we've seen how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers back in chapter 37. He had been purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian, and a captain of the guard. And we're told that Joseph found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. And he made him overseer of all his household. All his possessions. Matter of fact, Potiphar didn't even know what he possessed. Only the bread he ate. Unfortunately for Joseph, being the stud that he was, Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes for him. She says, oh, Joseph, lie with me. Lie with me. Day after day after day. And that, my friends, is a hard thing to resist. You're a young man. You're at the peak of your life. You're a servant. Who's going to know? Joseph, lie with me. But what was his response? There is no one greater in this house than I. Or has he kept back anything from me but you? Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, he, he knows someone has seen the most important person, and that's God. He sees everything. But we know no good deed goes unpunished, right? She falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. So off to jail he goes. And while in prison, Joseph finds favor with the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison commits Joseph, all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever they did, it was his doing. It was his responsibility now. He was responsible for them. Now you guys know the rest of the story, right? Uh... A couple of Pharaoh's servants were in prison awaiting judgment. One was a, a baker and the other was a chief butler. And they both had dreams, right? And so traumatic were these dreams that they found no one that could interpret the dreams. And, and Joseph began to ask, why are those guys bummed out? Look at their faces. Why are they so sad? Well, because they had these pretty heavy dreams and there's no one that can interpret them. So Joseph says, tell me the dreams. And so they both tell the, you know, give him the dreams. And he gives the interpretation. One's great, the other's not so great. We end up knowing that the baker ends up hung, loses his head. And the chief butler, of course, is restored. Now Joseph reminded the chief butler, hey man, remember me. Don't forget about me. Remember, he's in jail. He's been in jail for several years now. But he did not remember. He didn't remember him until Pharaoh himself had a dream which no one in the whole land could interpret. The chief butler says, Hey, Pharaoh, hey, guess what? 
I know someone. I got your man. So Joseph is summoned from prison. Joseph then provides the interpretation for Pharaoh and his dreams. There would be seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance, but then there would be seven years of famine. Not just a light famine, a severe famine. So impressed by this young man and the advice he presented to Pharaoh that Pharaoh elevates him to oversee all of his house and over all the people and over all the land of Egypt. He was given authority over everything except one thing, Pharaoh's throne. He literally has second, he was second to Pharaoh. And it seemed that everything Joseph did turned to gold. He had the Midas touch. God was with him. Well, the seven years of abundance had passed. And now, they were two years into the famine. And again, the famine wasn't a local famine. This famine stretched beyond the land of Canaan. Israel had heard that there was food in Egypt. That one could go down there and purchase grain. So what does Jacob do? He sends his ten boys down to Egypt. You guys need to go down there and, and buy food. But what they didn't account for was they're going to have a meeting with their past. They're going to meet their brother. As Israel's sons enter into Egypt to buy food, Joseph is overseeing the sale of grain. He sees them, and I wonder what it was like for Joseph seeing these men who are in their late 40s and early 60s. Could you imagine you're sitting there and you're Joseph? Man, you got your makeup on. You're all Egypt out, right? You're decadent. You're, you're, the, you're the ruler. Pharaoh's only the one above you. And, and foreigners are coming from all over the place. And then you see ten guys roll up. Ten guys. Brothers. My brothers. Imagine what he, he, he was thinking. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a pretty powerful thing. Because it's been more than 20 years since he's seen them. These guys are in their 40s, and again, their 60s. Now, again, what does he do? He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got prestige. How easy it could have been for him to exercise his power to punish them. But he doesn't. He could have made them suffer. Like Edmund. Went around and used his power. Flexed his muscle. And made them pay. And I'm sure he's tempted. Hey, I'm, hey, he's made of the same stuff you and I are made of. And I'm sure that thought came across his mind. Man, I can make them sweat it out. And I know he does a little bit, but it's not for that reason. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And we're told something very interesting in Genesis 42.9. It says that Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. It was all coming to fruition before his eyes. He remembers the dreams. Could you imagine? All of a sudden, everything came to a head in that moment. I remember the dreams. They all bowed down to me. The sheaves, they all bowed down. And he challenges them through a series of tests. He says to them, oh, you guys are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. You came to check us out. You want to see our, our material wealth. And then they try to convince Joseph, hey, that we're honest men. Really? We're honest. 
Really? We're honest men. So Joseph offers them an opportunity to demonstrate their honesty. He says, you know what? Bring back your younger brother while I hold your other brother in jail till you return. They have no leverage, so they depart back home. And as they travel home, they discover all the money back in their sacks of grain. Now, they're scared. They're scared. Surely they can't return and give an explanation without one, for the money, and two, without their younger brother going with them. If they, if they can give an explanation, Benjamin has to go back with them. They can't go back without him. Which brings us here to Genesis 43. So we're going to look at two areas here, guys. Israel's apprehension, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to see Joseph's allurement, verses 15 through 34. Let's look at verses 1 through 2 here. We have Israel's request. He says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. As we learned from the previous chapters, the famine is so severe, there is only one place selling food. It's not Costco, it's Egypt. Israel is quickly running out of food, and there's no other options. The boys have to go back. They have to at least buy a little food. Now, we have to understand something here. It's not just Jacob or Israel and the boys. It's their families and their livestock. Remember, they have an abundance. Remember when he he came back into the land of Canaan, remember? He he had sections, groves of people. So he's coming back with, with many goods. Now, we don't know how much time has gone by since they returned from Egypt which, by the way, is about 200 to 250 miles from where they lived. And we don't know how much time it was that they consumed all the food. Okay? So, not only the distance, but the time it took to consume their food. But I'm sure every time they sat down to eat, Israel was thinking to himself, as any good father would, we're going to run out of food. What are we going to do? How am I going to feed my family? And as you, as, if you're a father, you understand that. You understand that I have to provide. Even though these are grown men, they have wives. I mean, these people are grown-ups. I still have to provide for them. You never stop being a father. We have to feed the, fam- the animals. My son's families are going to starve. Simeon is incarcerated. There's no food to the north or to the east. To the west is just the ocean. Egypt is the only place we can go. And I'm sure he's thinking there again that the decision to take Benjamin down to Egypt was non-negotiable. There's no way. I'm not sending Benjamin. Maybe if, you know, Israel was a little younger, might be a different story, but he's an old man. His hip is permanently permanently out of joint. He's frail. Again, what were his options? There were none. And with each passing day, the burden to provide was only getting heavier and heavier and heavier. It's amazing how desperate one could get when faced with the thought of seeing your loved ones suffer. Why? Because pain is involved. 
I don't know about you. I hate to see my kids suffer. Even when they deserve it. I'm serious. Even when they deserve I hate seeing that. I hate seeing them in pain. I don't enjoy it. As someone once told me long ago, and this, believe me, this phrase um, really stuck to me, especially because I, I was self-employed. It motivated me to get up early in the morning. He says, you know what, Fernando? Hunger is a cruel master. And that stuck to me. And this is what Israel is facing. Hunger is a cruel master. My options are limited. I only have one option, and that's Egypt. But they want to send my son. Non-negotiable. Israel is beside us. He can't find a solution. You know what's missing from this narrative? Two things. There is no talk about rescuing Simeon. I mean, no one's talking about Simeon. Think about that. You know, hey, what, he's, he's been incarcerated. What are we going to do? No, they're there eating. Do you know? How long he's been in jail? We don't know. But he's, he's incarcerated. And two, where is a sense of trust by Israel in the Lord? I don't read that. As you examine the text, I don't read that at all. And what I've learned about trials is that trials have a way to demonstrate where we are at spiritually. You ever see someone in trouble as a Christian and they're panicking and freaking out? Those who truly have a walk with the Lord, there's a peace about them. Those who don't, they're everywhere. They're, they're talking to everybody. They're, I mean, they're all over all over the range here. How we respond when difficulty arises. What's your initial reaction when trials materialize? Do you go around shouting the sky is falling? Do you panic? Do you try to fix it yourself? Do you try to fix it in your own energy? You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation or trial, that's the same word here, or trial, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who's faithful? God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you, what, may be able to bear it. God is not this big ogre in the sky. Okay, He doesn't get off on seeing you suffer. This is an important lesson for all of us to learn, and hopefully... We don't forget, but we do forget that when the trials come, and they will come, God will give us a way out. His heart is not set to destroy us. And that's a common lie of the enemy. When trials come, you begin to think, oh great, God's punishing me. What did I do? And all of a sudden, self-examination comes, and the enemy loves it. God says, you need to just trust me. Yeah, I know things are... are it seems like this storm that's going around you, but you need to trust me. He's never going to allow us to endure a situation more than we're able to bear. And we often forget this valuable lesson. And Israel is no exception. The irony is Israel is not living up to his name. As a matter of fact, he's been called Jacob up to the last chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. He's been called Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Chapter 43, now it's Israel. Why? He's being challenged. What does his name mean? His name means governed by God. Do you remember how he got his name? Do you remember the situation? 
Jacob was on his way back again to Canaan after ser- serving Laban all these years. And he was about to meet up with his brother Esau. That was a problem for him, wasn't it? Why? Because he was fearful of his brother. That he would exact vengeance upon him for ripping him off of his father's blessing. So he sends his family ahead of him in groups until he's all alone. Okay? He sends everybody up. Hopefully that, you know, it'll soften Esau's heart that maybe he'll have some compassion. He'll be merciful. And then here he is. He's all alone. And then we're told in Genesis thirty-two twenty-four that Jacob had wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. And we're told that that man touched the socket of his hip, causing it to come out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he told Jacob, hey, let me go. But Jacob would not let him go. He says, bless me. Bless me first. Then I'll let go. Let me go. You need to bless me. I'm not letting you go. And in verse 27, he asks him, what is your name? He says, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. He struggled with God and with men. And you think, you would think that this should have settled the issue, right? Every time someone said Israel, I remember, I wrestled that man. He called me Israel, governed by God. That that should have settled it. But he forgot. He forgot. Why? It's our heart. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. It's our carnal nature. Notice verses 3 through 10. Judah's convincing request. He he says here in verse 3, But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Judah reminds Israel that the man in Egypt warned him that they cannot go back unless they took their younger brother back with them. In other words, we're not willing to go back if Benjamin is not allowed to go. But if he is, then we're willing to go. That's non-negotiable. I don't care who you are, Israel. I know your, your dad, but I'm not going back. Judah had witnessed this man's authority firsthand. He saw Simeon physically arrested and incarcerated and hauled off to jail. This man meant business. And what leverage did they have? They had none. They were shepherds. What is that against a ruler of Egypt? Nothing. Judah understood. He was impotent. There there was no way of, of, of dialoguing with him. He made a strict command. Notice verse 6, he says, And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? Israel knows his sons. They are not the most moral bunch. And it seems that every time we read of them, they are a thorn in his father's side. Notice he says, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me? The Hebrew actually says, Why did you deal so wickedly or evil towards me? It carries a different sense. It's, it's as if it carries intent. It's as if you guys did this on purpose. Why would you do that? I'm your dad. 
Now think about it. What if this was Joseph or Benjamin telling them this? It would have been different. He would have responded differently, wouldn't he? You say, okay, you're, you're making sense. But these guys are not morally right. They have a reputation. That's why he's mad. He says, why have you dealt wickedly with me? Let me give you, for, you know, for example, I, I was thinking about this. Do you remember how Levi and Simeon went out and killed all the men under King Hamor and, and Shechem? Genesis 34. Do you remember why he killed them? Well, because Shechem forced himself upon their sister Dinah. Remember that story? Shechem was in love with Dinah, and he and his father sought out an alliance with Jacob and his family. And the king and the men of the city made an agreement to coexist with Jacob. And part of the agreement was that all the men of the city would circumcise themselves, and then they would be able to intermarry and trade amongst them. The thing sounded good to the people, so Hamar and Shechem and all the men of the city circumcised themselves. must have been a great deal for them to do that. Well, Levi and Simeon had other plans. They were only interested in vindicating their sister. So what do they do? Three days later, they come back with swords and killed all the men of the city. And this troubled Jacob immensely since he feared that there might be a reprisal from their neighbors. And secondly, because it ruined his reputation. They broke their word. What about Reuben? Well, Reuben had laid with with Bilhal, Jacob's concubine. Well, okay, what about Judah? Well, he had a sordid past, didn't he? It was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery, though his father didn't know it. But... After they sell Joseph, what happens? He takes off. He lives not too far away from where uh, Jacob was. And he marries outside the family. He marries an unsaved woman. He births three sons, two of whom were told were so wicked, again, a chip off the old block, that the Lord killed them. And finally, he generates a huge scandal and impregnates his daughter-in-law with twins. Judah has a very bad reputation. But there's hope. There's good news. There is hope. Judah, for some reason, seems to make a turn, as we'll discover in the next few chapters. I believe, after all he's experienced in his life, he's had a change of heart. We're going to see that. Again, now bear in mind, these aren't 20-year-old men anymore. These are men in their 50s and 60s. And notice here in verse 7, he says, But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Notice the reply. They couldn't have known this man would make this type of request. I mean, who does that? Bring us your brother. I've never read any story in history that made that type of request. And they were caught off guard by this request. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Again, Judah seems to be a different man now. Reuben, his oldest son, suggested in the previous chapter that he be responsible for Benjamin if they returned to Egypt. And if something happened to Benjamin, then Israel had the right to kill his two sons. Well, Israel ignored that plan. It was irrational. What would that achieve? Just killing your two sons? That, that, that doesn't mean anything. But notice what Judah was saying. Look, did you, I don't know if you picked up on it. He says, I will be surety for him. I will blame. I will, I will take the blame forever. He put the blame on himself. He says, I will take the responsibility. Judah was different. And Israel is starting to recognize it. So much so that he agrees with his plan. Notice verse 11. He says, And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Here they were. They were to prepare a gift. Notice the items they wanted to present to Joseph. Most of these items were the same items the Ishmaelites who purchased Joseph were taking to Egypt to sell. Why? Because these, these items weren't produced in Egypt. And Israel's hoping he can gain some favor for his son Benjamin. And what's also in- interesting in all this, which I think is lost in the details, is it doesn't appear that Benjamin has a problem with going. You don't read that. There's silence from Benjamin. I mean, no doubt he's a grown man by now. He's in his mid-twenties. There's no argumentation. There's no refusal on his part. Just silence. He's the submissive son. Dad is still making decisions on his behalf. Notice verse 12. says, Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Interesting. He wants them to return not only the money that was returned, but they were to double it. They were to double it. Now, why is this interesting? Because, well, how many brothers went to Egypt? Ten, right? That means there were ten bundles of money, one in each sack. You double that amount, and you have how many bundles? Twenty bundles of money. And the word for money is the same exact word for silver. It's the word kesef. You say, why is that significant? Well, it's interesting to me because how many shekels of silver or kesef was Joseph sold for? 20. Coincidence? I think not. 20. Verse 13. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It's the only time he mentions the Lord since chapter 35. I, I, I went back. I looked. There isn't a, a moment or a time that Jacob or Israel mentions the Lord's name since chapter 35. A long time ago. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's because the death of his son, he got jaded. I don't know. But he has not brought the Lord's name up until now. 
And you get the sense that Israel is feeling deflated and defeated. I think God was trying to get his attention for a long, long time. He was removing that one thing that was getting his way spiritually. His son had become an idol to him. His joy was tied in his son and not the Lord. And we could do that as parents. We can get our eyes off the Lord and get so consumed with either a person or an object. And notice this comment. If I am bereaved, hey, well, I'm bereaved. Meaning he might end up childless out, out of this circumstance. Which again is a problem because uh, we know God had promised him that he would make his descendants like the dust of the earth in number. Uh, turn with me to Genesis 28. And this is significant. Genesis 28. Verse 13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as what? The dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. What a promise. Do you realize that the Lord has done the same, He's given us the same promise? He would never leave us or forsake us. Never leave us or forsake us. We have that promise. And here, Israel's forgotten all about it. He says, If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. In his mind, he's seen his sons, all his sons, leave for Egypt. And it's not, it's not registering that God said his descendants will be like the dust of the earth. How does that happen? He has to have children. That means God's going to be with them. But we get so caught up with our circumstances and we panic. You think he's having a lapse of faith here? Again, how do you handle trials? Are you governed by your emotions or by the Spirit? Folks, we are not in control. God is. God has a way to challenge us, challenge us and to press us onto maturity, that we might have confidence in Him. God creates the famines, so to speak, in our lives. He creates the situations to challenge our faith. Psalm 105.16 says this, Moreover, He, speaking of God, called for a famine in the land, this famine. He destroyed all the provision of bread. Who was responsible for the famine? God was. God was in control. God is the one who orchestrated this famine to fulfill his purposes. Just like God used the Roman emperor Caesar to conduct a census and he stirred the whole empire, the whole Roman world, to cause Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem. He used a corrupt nation, a corrupt government to, for his purposes. God is in control. He creates the famines. He creates the adversities to fulfill his purposes. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's the key. He's going to reward us if I seek him. I can't be passive. I have to be engaged with him. What is that thing you're clinging to, obstructing your confidence in the Lord? 
Is there something in your life that's in the way? It's letting go and letting God. It's putting my trust in Him. Let's look at Joseph's allurement here in verses 15 through 34. Notice here in verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Notice here, Israel's sons returned to Egypt safely. And what was that like for these ten? What was that like for them? I'm sure as they traveled those 250 miles, the mood was somber. You can't help but to think, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? This guy seems to just have all the answers. I mean, we can't lie to the man. He just seems to know what we're all about. They had a lot of time to contemplate their fate. And when they arrive, Joseph has them go to his house for a feast. Now remember, folks, Joseph is speaking through an interpreter. You know, so he's, you know, here, here's, here's Joseph, and he has his interpreter, and the interpreter is talking to the brothers. He's, and he's, and they're, they're talking, and they understand him. And, and again, Joseph is very Egyptian to them. They're not picking up on the fact that this is their brother. They don't recognize him because he's speaking through an interpreter. He's able to maintain his cover. And what was that like for Joseph when he saw his younger brother? What was that like? 20 years. He hadn't seen him in 20 years. The last time he saw his brother, he was probably two or three years old. And then he was hauled off to Egypt. It was probably like seeing him for the very first time. He probably gazed at him to see what he looked like. Does he look like mom? Does he look like dad? What does he look like? Does he have mom's eyes? I'm sure it was a big bag of mixed emotions for him. And notice here verse 18. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Take note, there's a difference in the way he spoke to his brothers from the first time they visited Egypt. He spoke to them harshly. And now, he's inviting. And this spooked his brothers. Do you remember how he spoke to them the first time? You guys are here, you're spies, you came to see the nakedness of the land. And now he's like, hey, you're invited to my house. They're alarmed, it's like, something's not right. It spooked them. Surely this is a setup. They're saying he's going to take us into his house, trump up charges because of the money, and he's going to enslave us and our livestock. This, no doubt, was a serious concern for all of them. 
They're going to be in his home where they would be the most vulnerable. They no doubt reason that he couldn't say they, they didn't bring their younger brother. So he couldn't charge them with lying. Here, here's our brother. But also in respect to the money, again, in their defense, they're bringing twice the amount than their first visit. Plus, we brought extra money for more food. So it wasn't like we're here to steal money. So here, here they're, they're thinking about this. Here's our brother. We're not lying. And here's the money and twice that plus more because we want more food. So this is what's going on through the mind. So they're trying to already, how are we going to defend ourselves with this ruler? But here's the problem. The problem is guilt. When you're guilty, you begin to view the world differently. You begin to view the world a little differently. They judge them by their own standard. You know, I began to think about this. It's like the non-believer, you know, um, when he comes to church for the first time. What, 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 is their, uh, what is their reaction when they first walk into the church doors? They're pretty guarded, aren't they? I know I was. They're hypercritical of everyone and everything. And why? Because all the negative connotations they've seen through the media. I remember when the pastor walked on stage, first thing I thought of, okay, one's going to pump me for money. Right? That's what you think. Get some of your smile because you understand what I'm talking about. Church is a foreign thing to them. Because, why? Because they've entered another world. One that's alien to their thoughts and their manner of life. And it's no different with these brothers. And I could just see them. Why is this Egyptian ruler being so benevolent all of a sudden? We're in his home. We're shepherds. We're in this ruler's home. Do you remember what it was like to come to church for the first time? Was that foreign for you? Do you remember the apprehension you had? Afraid to let your guard down? I remember I used to think, these people are too nice. This can't be real. They, I mean, no, there's no way. Except you guys. <laughs> Glad you're awake. <laughs> Notice verse 23. But he said, peace be with you. Shalom. That's the word there. Shalom. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Could you imagine Simeon? Simeon, what's been going on? How do they treat you? Is there any new information you can give us? And so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they would eat bread there. So the steward of Joseph's house attempted to ease their minds by indicating that their accounts were settled. They didn't owe any money. As a matter of fact, he was the one responsible. And it was God who blessed them with treasure. And it makes you wonder if this guy came to faith through Joseph. You know, it's your God. You know, there's this level of respect. And I wonder if, if Joseph is the one who was a witness unto him. And the brothers were perplexed even more. Now, no, he's not embellishing this story to say God made the money miraculously appear in their sacks, but he's saying God has blessed them immensely. You want to talk about grace? Something they didn't deserve. Why? Because we know who these brothers are, right? They certainly didn't deserve this money. 
And yet you say, no, that's God. God is blessing you. Man, I don't deserve it. They certainly didn't deserve it. Think about all the times you've blown it in your life. And you know you didn't deserve any good thing coming your way. And yet you come home and your wife loves you. I don't deserve that. Or you come to work. People smile at you when you've been a creep. I don't deserve that. Yet God in his grace and mercy blesses you anyway. And that's what these guys are experiencing right now. This man brings them in, gives them water, they wash their feet, and he feeds their animals. How do they deserve this treatment? They didn't. They didn't deserve it. Could you imagine what it must have been like for them as they stood there in Joseph's home? I bet you they felt incredibly small. Think, think of the setting, okay? Imagine the home, it must have been decadent, okay? Again, this guy's second to Pharaoh. He didn't live in a shack, okay? He probably had amazing artwork. He probably had the best and most current furniture. He had pools, the finest decorations. And, there, and here they were, standing in the middle of all this, shepherds. Smelling like the field. No doubt, they're still reeling from the news of what the steward had gave them. Then they hear that Joseph has arrived. Notice verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then they asked him about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. The brothers pay homage to Joseph. They bow in acknowledgement of his power and his authority. It tells us in chapter 42, verse 9, that when his brothers came into Egypt, again, he remembered, right, the dreams which he dreamed about them. Here, he's experiencing the fulfillment. It's being fulfilled before his eyes. Again, what was that like for Joseph? I wonder if he began to think about all the hardship he'd gone through. Serving Potiphar, sitting in prison for years, and now he, he's overseeing Pharaoh's affairs, and he remembers the dream. All the sheaves bowing down to him. What an incredible fulfillment. God was faithful. God was faithful during all his hardship. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Notice, he lifts his eyes and he sees his brother brother Benjamin, his mother's son. (laughs) He says, Is this the younger brother you spoke to me? He doesn't even wait for the answer. Because there is no answer. He knows already. As he looks at him, that's my brother. There's no doubt. That's my brother. He said, God be gracious to you, my son. I bet even though he used an interpreter, it was still understood by the emotion he conveyed. I bet you that was universal. God be gracious to you. Verse 30, now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. 
<laughs> Again, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. And he had, a, he had to find a place to weep. This is the second time we find him weeping. He's unlike his brothers. He's not, hard, he's not hardened. He's still tender-hearted. Notice, he yearned for his brother Benjamin. Yearned. That word yearned in the Hebrew is the word kamar. You know what it means? It means to glow from the heat. As he saw his brother Benjamin, he began to glow. His, his heart was kindled. He saw his brother, and he, he knows the connections there. And so he begins to have this feeling for his, his brother. He loves his brother. Something he hadn't experienced for a long time. And standing before him was something all the riches of Egypt couldn't give him. A relationship. Egypt couldn't provide that. A, re- a relationship with his family. Do you value relationships above material things? Are you spending time with loved ones? Because I'll tell you, if I remove your house, your cars, your bank account, all your possessions, what's left? It should be the people you love. Right? That should be the answer. If you can't give me that answer, something is wrong. Notice here we have the guest of honor, verses 32 through 34. It says here, So they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Notice here in verse 32, three tables were set. One for the Egyptians, one for Joseph, and one for the guests. Why? The Egyptians abhorred the thought of eating at the same table with Hebrews, especially Hebrew shepherds. And as far as they were concerned, Hebrews were a different race, they spoke a different language, and they practiced a different religion. Though they knew Joseph was a Hebrew, for all intents and purposes, he was seen as an Egyptian. He had an Egyptian name, he had an Egyptian wife, and in in general, he lived in a manner after Egyptian rulers. Therefore, he was accepted. Here in verse 34, uh, again, uh, the brothers were sitting in the order of ages. It was the eldest to the youngest. They were, I mean, think about it. How did they find out? How did they know? And this was a great mystery to them. And I can just see them now. I mean, they're sitting from oldest to youngest. Here's Reuben at the front of the table. There's Simeon. Then there's Levi. There's Judah, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and finally Benjamin. And what makes this so astonishing is there are no less, I looked this up, there are no less than 39,917,000 different ways in which 11 individuals could have been seated. Isn't that crazy? Over 39 million ways. Thus, for the servants to select one correct order by chance is nearly impossible. The odds are 40 million to one. So they're just sitting there with their mouths open. How do they know? What does this guy know about us? And here they are staring at one another in bewilderment. And then something else occurs. <laughs> Benjamin is giving five times the amount of what the other brothers were receiving. Five times the amount. 
So why did, why did Benjamin receive five times more than his brothers? I have an idea. <laughs> but it's only speculation. I think Joseph, again, throughout this whole time, was testing his brothers. He, he had already overheard them back in chapter 42, 21, how they had shown real sorrow for the sin against Joseph. They admitted their guilt. And I think Joseph took note of that. I think it was genuine. It appeared that they were sincere again and genuine. Otherwise, Joseph wouldn't have wept. Think about that. If they, if they really weren't sincere, he could care less. But he heard them. He heard the turmoil that we're guilty of our brother Joseph. And he wept. Also, Joseph kept challenging their honesty. And so far, they had never lied. Something else he took note of. Also, do you remember why they sold Joseph in the first place? They were moved with envy. Verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 11 states. It tells us because Jacob loved him above all, other, all of the other children. And so they envied him. They sold him off because of envy. And I think he wanted to see if that same trait that betrayed him was still a dominant trait amongst them. So he gives their brother Benjamin five times of what the others received. And if you have brothers and sisters, I think you all understand the dinner table, don't you? Right? I remember in my house, man, why does my brother Jose have more food? I work harder than he does, you know? And, and that's, that's what we're, that's going on here. Why is this guy getting five times the amount? And again, as siblings, we assume the bigger portion means that person has more favor than the other. I mean, I remember, again, coming home from work and school. And I come home and, and I go, Mom, where's the food? Snooze, you lose. What are you talking about? They don't work. They don't go to school. How come they get to eat? And I don't. <laughs> well, needless to say, I know who uh, Mom's favorite was. Just saying. Um but what about Joseph's brothers? What about Joseph's brothers? Is there any arguing, any bickering? There's not even a hint of envy. They passed another test. They're not questioning, why does he have more? And he takes note of that as well. So far, again, they've passed every test. But there's one more test coming. And as Cress says, to be continued. To be continued. Don't worry, we got you set up for next week. This meal, however, was one way to see how his brothers conducted themselves. Joseph's no dummy. He's looking at his brothers. This is one way of seeing if he could possibly reconcile with them. And what a great picture set before us. All the brothers enjoying each other's fellowship, laughing and making merry. And for this moment, this one moment, everything was great. And here they are. As far as they're concerned, they're sitting in the house of an Egyptian ruler. No clue as to what's going on. They, didn't, they probably didn't know what to make of it, but just to enjoy the moment. Now, let me finish with this. Unlike Jacob, or rather Israel, we know what the end looks like, don't we? We have the word of God. We have the scriptures. Yet how many of us live defeated lives? We succumb to the here and now, 
rather than living with the expressed revelation of God. You know what the great lesson of this passage is? is if you boil it down, it's Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Is God sitting on the throne of your heart? The famines are going to come. The trials of life are inevitable. Yet, are you seeking Him first? Or are you relying on the arm of the flesh? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in in Jesus' name. And Lord, help us to understand, Lord, that you are in control, Lord, of everything. Lord, you look at us as if we're the only ones that exist to you, Lord. You love us that way. And so, Father, we just pray, Lord, that we would um, just look to you, Lord, when the trials do come when things are out of control and we have none, Lord, that we cling to you and understand, Lord, you always provide the way of escape. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn from these guys and the mistakes they made that we wouldn't repeat them, Lord. Lord, that we would walk after the Spirit. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you, Lord, as as to a faithful creator. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.